On It's at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week, we are super excited to bring you the first episode in our Silas Marner read-along. Although George Eliot is a writer that comes up all the time on Bonnets at Dawn, this is the first time we're going to read one of her novels on the show. That's right. It feels like we talk about her all of the time, mostly in relation to her longtime pen pal and Bonnets at Dawn's very own literary poltergeist, Harriet Beecher Stowe. (laughs) But this is... Only the second time we've really dedicated an episode to her, which is kind of kind of odd. Yeah, it is strange. I think so. The first one, and also it's been ages. So the mm-hmm. first episode was way back when in season three, episode twenty three, and I went on the road with Sam in search of George Eliot, and we went to Nuneaton and Coventry. So along the way, we visited the George Eliot archives, and then. In the episode, we're also joined by Professor Ruth Livesey for an interview. And you will notice on that episode that I mention, I've just finished reading Brenda Maddox's biography, George Eliot in Love, which is also known as George Eliot, novelist, lover, wife, which is very confusing on the internet because there is another book called In Love with George Eliot by Catherine O'Shaughnessy. (laughs) Which you also like that (laughs) book. Which I also really like. (laughs) Uh, Lauren, I think you've just finished reading George Eliot in Love. Is that correct? Oh, oh yes, I, I have. <laughs> and did you love it? Um, I, I really, really did. Uh, can I just say, I'm really into the idea of structuring a biography all around sort of the people and places and ideas mm. that the subject really loves. Like, um, I mean, I guess if you were to do a bio on me, you could talk about my relationship with Hannah or my husband or my love of England or donuts. I don't know how interesting my biography would be. Certainly not as interesting as George Eliot. Um, That gal, man, she really loved her German theology. Mm. Loved, loved German theology. (laughs) And had all of these romantic entanglements. And I'm specifically using the word entanglements because... um, I don't know if you're familiar with Red Table Talks over there, Jada Pinkett Smith's I've Facebook heard of it, but I've TV never, like, show. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Well, there, there are some romantic entanglements that she gets into on the show, <laughs> and that's really the only word for it: entanglements. I, th- I think entanglement is a an apt word for discussing George Eliot's love life. Mm-hmm. And we're going to really get into it because I'm going to have to keep bringing it up, even though it's going to take a slightly off subject. But I just I have to. So the other question I have is going back in time, back to Mm -hmm. season three, 2019. Mm -hmm. You hadn't read Middlemarch at that point. you, You have read it now, right? I um have not. I have I not read Middlemarch. I thought you guys all read it on the Facebook group because I was like, I'm not doing it. Right, 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 right. I listened <laughs> to some chapters. Um, <laughs> I, like, guys, I've been trying to read Middlemarch for like 12 <laughs> years. It's really an ongoing thing. I don't think I'll finish it until I'm like on my deathbed. Um, I did pull it out to read some time ago, but... Then it just completely went missing from my bedside table. And I have to tell you this. This is like the only book I've ever lost. Like, I am not the most organized person, but like, I know exactly where all of my books are on all of my shelves, in storage. Like, I I totally have a full grasp on my book collection, Mm. except for my copy of Middlemarch, which like continuously goes missing. So I'm pretty sure that like the ghost of George Eliot is responsible for taking it. Yeah, I would, yeah. But, you know, I can confirm that I have read Silas Marner. I don't know if I believe you. I'm going to test you. (laughs) I'm going to ask you some (laughs) questions about it. I absolutely have read it. (laughs) You know, it's a short book. I see why it's often picked for, like, high school English classes. So, you know, Mm. so it was really easy for me to get into this one. Um... But I am curious because I know you're obsessed with this book. Yeah, I'm like, really obsessed with Cyberman. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's amazing. You've read it, so you know mm. why I'm obsessed with it. Uh, sure. 
so yeah i don't know i had like i hadn't read it before either the start of this year or the end of last year i cannot remember when it was and i just had this like come to jesus moment with the novel um there's a really good audiobook adaptation of it read by sean baker which is on bbc sounds which mm. i know you can't access but if anyone can yes. access it 10 out of 10 i really like it so i just fell in love with the story i listened to it pretty much on repeat for a few weeks and then i made sam get me because i don't have an audible account i made him get me mm. this like audible george Eliot collection okay and i have listened to the Silas Marner. I've actually tried to listen to other George Eliot things on there. And I'm just like, I don't care. I don't really like Mill on the Floss. You just want different versions of Silas Marner. I just Marner. want different versions of Silas <laughs> Marner, basically. The thing that was really interesting about the Audible adaptation is that it's a play. It's a radio play, not an mm-hmm. audio book. And the scenes that happen before Silas moves to Ravelo are really clear. So when I listened to that, I was like, oh shit, all of this stuff happened that I kind of knew, but like the impact of it on him hadn't like sunk in. So I've just, in the last however many months, yeah, just can't leave it alone. And then I got the paperback and then I read it and then I read it again to prep for this season. So that's wild stuff, wild stuff. And I will say as well that, um, it had to be Silas Marner and not Middlemarch because we will never, ever, we will never read Middlemarch for the show. It's too it's long. too long. I'm not doing it. So the fact that Silas Marner is short was just like an added bonus because I like Middlemarch, mm-hmm. but I ain't doing it, guys. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> so uh, I am not the only person, Lauren, that is obsessed with this book. I have some quotes from famous people for you. Okay. So like... <laughs> Back me up. Virginia Woolf said that George Eliot was at her best in Silas Marner, and later that Middlemarch is more interesting because it attempts to include more, but that it's inferior to Silas Marner in artistic perfection. That's wild. I mean, you know, listen. <laughs> okay, Virginia. <There's> okay. <laughs> Henry James said that I think Silas Marner holds a higher place than any of the author's works. It is more nearly a masterpiece. Wow. It's rude because he says it's more nearly a masterpiece. He doesn't mm-hmm. say it's a masterpiece. So, backhanded compliment. And then Professor F.R. Leavis, who I only know because of Bridget Jones. Anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, it's a real person. He said that it's a, the charming minor masterpiece and went on to add that it has in it, in its solid way, something of the fairy tale. Which I, okay, I yeah. jumped on that. I was like, yes, I think I love fairy tales. I think maybe that's something that I'm connecting to when I'm reading it. Mm-hmm. And George Eliot, in a letter to her publisher, John Blackwood, was not on board. She was like, I just don't think anyone is going to like this but me. Mm. And that, yeah, I don't know. I think it's such a personal book to her because that's what Louisa May Alcott was saying about Little Women. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, And just kind of like sidebar too, I don't have the book in front of me, but I'm sort of remembering, wasn't she working on Silas Marner like while she was working on Romola? And Romola was like a historical novel that like included all of this like research and it was just like a big undertaking. And so she just sort of had Silas Marner on the back burner, like, let me just do this real quick. Yeah, I think that's one she probably, yeah, had weird feelings about it. Like, yeah, let me just get this out here to keep keep publishing, keep my money mm-hmm. going while I, you know, work on this big wild project, which I think she thought Romola was going to be her masterpiece. And everyone was like, no. yeah, we like Silas <laughs> Marner. <laughs> Funny how that works out. But did you like it? <laughs> did you like it? <laughs> okay, so I liked it a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I was definitely feeling it, but like, I, I am a little shocked that people like are obsessed with it. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. So that was one thing that I really liked about the book. Um, but I will say this for sure. Definitely a great gateway book to get people into Elliot. Like I am way more interested 
in middle March. And I kind of feel like with some of the opening chapters of Silas Marner um, and the way that she puts things together, mm-hmm. I have a better understanding of what she's trying to do in middle March. And so now I'm glad that like, so, so maybe, maybe I was always meant to read middle March after Silas Marner. Like maybe, maybe that that's book your was, destiny. it was meant to go missing, you see? Mm. So it was, it was destiny. Mm. Yeah. What a- that has a, a real Silas Marner quality to it, that idea, Lauren. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do think anyone that reads Silas Marner and then any of her other works is going to be disappointed, but that's just... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you sorry. and Henry James both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it is a masterpiece, though. Sorry, Henry. We do not agree. Mm. Um. Yeah, so here's, like, the pitch in short. For anyone who's, like, on the fence about reading it or isn't sure... It is going to touch on a lot of subjects that I think will resonate with our listeners. We've got some intrigue. We've got some romance. We've got representations of chronic illness. It's set in a, an English village, a rural English village in the early 19th century. And if you want some help, this is pre-North and South. North and South yeah. is very industrial revolution. And this is describing mm-hmm. the world that existed before that mm-hmm. happened. So I think... We're leading up to it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's spooky sometimes. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. Christmassy. There's lots of wonderful dialogue. It's like Middlemarch meets Wives and Daughters for me in a lot of ways. But oh, also, wow. I get why teenagers would not like this book. Like, I'm glad I read this book at yeah, 32. Yeah. Because teenage Hannah would just be like, I don't give a shit. I would have been rolling my eyes if had I like had to read mm-hmm. this in, in high school. Yeah. In one of the essays I was reading about it, it was just saying like, it really got stuck in the schoolroom for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then it's they've kind of had to like, it's like extracting something out of the mud, right? Like the Vassa in Stockholm, if anyone knows what that reference means. They had, they had to like excavate Silas Marnik because it was just completely bogged down in the classroom. People weren't like talking about it or really like analyzing it. And now it's like, but the person that wrote that, that was written in like 1979. So... <laughs> It would be... It's had a minute. It's had 50 years. Now, I think that I would put it back in now, but that's just old Lauren talking. Oh, my God. I know. Okay. I'm going to ask you at the end, do you want to put it back in the mud? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ask me back in the the end. So for those of you who don't know who George Eliot is, it's amazing that you've got it this far into the episode. (laughs) Anyway... This is a great place to pause and listen to that season three episode or even our most recent mixtape as we have a brief George Eliot bio that touches on why she felt so isolated. She mm. had a lot of feelings, guys, by the way. Read the read in love with George Eliot. Um, <laughs> so that will all be you know, important for understanding the headspace that she was inhabiting while working on Silas Marner. Um, now. Silas Marner, the weaver of... Are we going to go with Ravelo or Ravelo? I have oh. heard two different pronunciations. Ravelo. And I, go Ravelo. On. I don't know okay. what it is, but I've, I'm not going to change how I was saying it. <laughs> Ravelo? Ravelo? Yeah. Ravelo? I want to call it Ravelo, but I that's not right, I don't think. My granddad would not say Ravelo, as far I as I can tell. But also, remember okay. that time we went to Keithley and we didn't know what that was called? I don't know. Places, names of places are hard. Silas Marner, The Weaver of Ravelo, was published in 1861, and it was George Eliot's third novel. Previously published novels and short stories include Scenes of Clerical Life, published in 1857, The Lifted Veil, which ooh, we could talk about The Lifted Veil. I think that one's interesting. And Adam Bede, both published in 1859. The Mill on the Floss, published in 1860. And then Middlemarch won't be published for another decade. And by 1861, Eliot has worked already as the editor of the Westminster Review, which we're going to talk about. Um, She's published three philosophical translations, which they sounded like a joy when I was reading that bio. Yeah. We're also not going to read those on the podcast, just to confirm. (laughs) We're not. and our favorite literary diss track, Silly Novels by Lady Novelist, which was published in 1856, which w- I would like to discuss on the podcast at some point. Um, 
It's also been four years since she began publishing under the pseudonym George Eliot. You know, it's a whole thing. I might refer to her at certain points as Marianne, just just so you know, because my, my brain was there when I was reading her bio. Yeah. My so brain. don't be confused. I was like, I've got to stick with a name for this. So I've got, I'm going to go with George Eliot, I think. Okay, okay. But just know, I want everyone to know. Mm-hmm. I, am, I am very aware of the other names of George Marianne, Eliot. Marianne Cross. You know, yeah. she's got a lot of names, right? So, the novel was written between 1860 and 1861 while living in London with her husband of sorts, George Henry Lewis. In the autobiographical matrix of Silas Marner, Lawrence J. Desner describes this time at describes this as a time of isolation, depression, poor health, discomfort, debility, hard work, bitterness, anxiety, and anguish. A lot of feelings there. Yeah. (laughs) Having run away to Germany with a married man, George Henry Lewis, only a few years before, Elliot had lost contact with her brother Isaac and many of her friends who were unable to condone her actions. Her sister Chrissy died in 1859, shortly followed by her nine-year-old niece, Katie, And added to this was the huge success of her novel, Adam Bede, and the immense pressure of keeping her identity secret. She also suspected that her longtime friend and unrequited love interest, or entanglement, (laughs) we could call him, Herbert Spencer, had revealed her identity to ex-lover John Chapman. Hard times. Hard times, hard times. I mean, he did it. He did it. First of all, <laughs> I am. I am calling it right now. Um, I do want to just take us on a little journey here because um, I want to briefly talk about Herbert Spencer and John Chapman really quickly, and it's relevant mostly because it will give you an idea of like the headspace that I was. <laughs> I was in when I was reading (laughs) Silas Marner. Um, So John Chapman was the handsome and charismatic owner of the Westminster Review. And his friends like to call him Byron. So there's a red flag there. It's a reason. Reason they called him Byron. Uh, When he hired Marianne Evans to be his editor-in-chief as part of her salary, he he offered her room and board in his house in London, uh, which she accepted was a good deal. And the pair started spending a lot of time together. And uh, this is not just uh, like working on the paper. They're mm-hmm. like taking walks. They're hanging out. They're going to the opera, I believe. They're, they're all over each other, which really upset his wife. And it also upset his mistress, who also lived in the same house. So he had everybody yeah. in there. He had the wife. He had the mistress, who also doubled as the governess. Mm-hmm. And, well, he um, had to give them all a job, Lauren. He, he really did. And he brought Marianne in there to work for him. And uh, yeah, the, the wife and the mistress were super upset and they had to conspire to get Marianne out of there, which, by the way, that's a novel I would love to read or a play I would love to see. So I would love to see the rom-com version of Georgia Elliott's life. <laughs> Oh my God. Can you imagine? Give her like the A-list Hollywood treatment. <laughs> Someone, please. It's wild. Um, so that's a whole scene. But really what I wanted to latch on to there was like just the audacity of John mm. Chapman. I mean, yeah. it's a lot. He kept um, a diary and he noted in his diary which of them he shagged. Yes. And on what days? That's how we <laughs> yeah. know. And I have to say, like, in the biography, I was still reeling from all of that. And then we get to Herbert Spencer. Mm. And Spencer, he's a lot. Like, and there are some really great articles unpacking his relationship with George Eliot on georgeelliotreview.org. And I highly recommend um, you all check them out. They relate to Middlemarch. So that's another reason Mm -hmm. why I'm excited to read about uh, Middlemarch, to read Middlemarch. And this needs a lot of unpacking because this is a long, complicated relationship. But long story short, he was a fellow writer and intellectual who was great friends with Marianne. I mean, they were together all of the time. And everyone in their circle assumed that they were going to get engaged, which, of course, 
he finds unflattering because he would never have such an ugly wife. Mm -hmm. And then he does this thing, which I can't get over. He wrote this like whole ass article about beauty as a mark of evolutionary superiority. And it's all just like horrible and racist and sexist. And um, in it, he described Marianne's face like to a T, like everyone in London knew who he was talking about as the example of like pure ugliness. And they remained friends. A lot. So there's like too much to unpack there. I honestly could talk about this all day. But really, like my overall point here for this episode is that I was particularly interested in the way that George Eliot like writes about just the audacity of men. Mm -hmm. And that is very much present in Silas Marner, which we're gonna get into. Also, can I just say that article that he wrote? Like George Lewis, like published it in his paper. So, like, her husband was the editor (laughs) of that paper? What is going on? He probably read it to her. He was probably sat around the fireplace being like, oh, if you had this bit. What? There's a lot. (laughs) If you are a psychologist, please write in to bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. Just give us your thoughts. Um, Okay. So, back to Silas Marner. Just, you know, to give a nutshell rundown of the plot Here is the British Library summary. So the protagonist, Silas Marner, is obliged to leave his small religious community after being falsely accused of theft. He settles in Ravelo. Ravelo? Ravelo? Wait, Ravelo? Say what you want. Just say what we don't have to say the same thing. Uh, He settles in Ravelo, where he works diligently as a weaver for 15 years and manages to accumulate and hoard a substantial amount of gold. The reclusive miser is distraught when his gold is stolen, but feels compensated when he finds an aban- when he finds an, an abandoned golden-haired toddler called Epi. Marner looks after her lovingly, and she becomes far more precious than his stolen gold. So it's a pretty straightforward and simple story, right? Let's go ahead and get into it. In the days when the spinning wheels hummed busily in the farmhouses, and even great ladies, clothed in silk and thread lace, had their toy spinning wheels of polished oak, there might be seen in districts far away among the lanes, or deep in the bosom of the hills, certain pallid, undersized men, who, by the size of the brawny country folk, looked like the remnants of a disinherited race. The shepherd's dog barked fiercely when one of these alien-looking men appeared on the upland, dark against the early winter sunset. For what dog likes a figure bent under a heavy bag? And these pale men rarely stirred abroad without that mysterious burden. Chapter 1 introduces us to the novel's protagonist, Silas Marner, a weaver by trade who's not quite 40. He is an outsider, having moved to the rural village of Ravelow in his 20s. He's a linen weaver and interacts with the villagers as little as possible. He never drinks in the pub and he only calls on his neighbours when he needs something. This, coupled with his poor eyesight and the cataleptic seizures that he regularly suffers from, which, as a quick explanation, they cause him to freeze in whatever position or stance he is in and then he has no memory of it happening. So he will just Mm -hmm. be like almost frozen in time for an indefinite period and then just go about his day as if nothing has happened. So the eyesight, the seizures, they've led to him being completely alienated from his local community and he is considered cunning, miserly and selfish. But we learn that Silas has not always been this way and that before he moved to Ravelot, he lived in the town of Lantern Yard and was a highly thought of member of a Calvinist community, which is a branch of Protestantism. And there he was respected as an artisan for his craft and for his ardent faith. He was engaged to a young servant woman called Sarah and the pair were saving up for marriage. And though his seizures aren't understood there either, some wonder if he's experiencing periods of paralysis that are brought on by pious fervour. So they think it's like a religious episode that he's having and that like, it's a great thing. You know? Yeah. 
It's worth noting that Silas does not encourage this belief, that they're religious episodes, mm. and that he doesn't use his per- perceived piety to his favour. He's not like right. actively trying to benefit from it or saying like, oh, I had a vision or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're also introduced to Silas's best friend in Lantern Yard, William Dane, who is described as being somewhat given to over-severity towards weaker brethren and to be so dazzled by his own light as to hold himself wiser than his teachers. Sounds like an asshole. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Can we trust William? No, probably not. No. And that's made pretty clear because he just starts saying like, I'm... Basically, what he says is, I'm not saying it is, but could it be Satan? Could these seizures be visits from Satan? Right, right. I'm not saying it's Satan. I'm just, but maybe. (laughs) Not touched by God, guys. Visits from Satan. Just throwing it out there. Just throwing it out there. Yep. Mm -hmm. And around this time, Silas is like, oh, Sarah's behaving a little differently. She's a bit distant asks her if she wants to break off the engagement and she says no but then that's explained it's kind of just because the the engagement has been recognized by the church if she was to try and break it off there would have to be an investigation and she's like i don't think everyone will understand if i say to them i don't want to marry silas because his seizures might be visits from the devil who do we think has been convincing her of that While all of this is happening, the senior deacon is taken ill and Silas, among others, volunteers to watch over him. The only problem is he has one of his seizures and when he comes to, he sees that the deacon is dead. And William, who was supposed to like come and relieve him in the night, just hasn't shown up. When he does eventually turn up, it's with the minister. Silas has like told people like the deacon died. I've got to go to work. And then William Mm -hmm. turns up with this minister and is like, hey, the deacon died and you robbed him while he was lying there dead. Best friend. It was a setup. It was a setup all along, guys. He says that Silas used his knife to break into the deacon's bureau, steal the church's money. But then later that day, they search Silas's chambers. In fact, I think William searches his chambers and Mm -hmm. finds the bag, but no money. And Silas is like, I didn't have my knife. William had it because I lent it to him. <laughs> and no one believes that he's been framed. They, yeah, they're they all like, they no, it sounds like Silas Marner did it. Sarah's like, great, I can break off the engagement. She marries William. Silas leaves town, brokenhearted and just like completely faithless. Like, yeah, goodbye, God. Yeah. Well, I mean, George Eliot was also a goodbye, God gal herself. Yes. Just want to note that as well. You know, so she's all about like pointing out all these hypocrisies when it comes to health and religion and kind of a, it's a great setup, great setup for who Silas is now. So in chapter two, we learn more about the differences between Ravelo and Lantern Yard and how these differences compound his crisis of faith. It seemed to him that the power he had vainly trusted in among the streets and at the prayer meetings was very far away from this land in which he had taken refuge, where men lived in careless abundance, knowing and needing nothing of that trust, which for him had been turned to bitterness. The little light he possessed spread its beams so narrowly that frustrated belief was a curtain broad enough to create for him the blackness of night. Silas throws himself wholly into his work. He seemed to weave like the spider from pure impulse without reflection. Every man's work, pursued steadily, tends in this way to become an end in itself, and so to bridge over the loveless chasms of his life. Silas's hand satisfied itself with throwing the shuttle and his eye with seeing the little squares in the cloth complete themselves under his effort. Then there were the cause of hunger, and Silas, in his solitude, had to provide his own breakfast, dinner and supper to fetch his own water from the well and put his own kettle on the fire. And all these immediate promptings helped, along with the weaving, to reduce his life to the unquestioning activity of a spinning insect. In Lantern Yard, he had been working for a wholesale dealer, so he earned less than in Ravelo. And because he stopped attending church, 
he has stopped paying his tithes or his charity. Money begins to give him a sense of purpose and fulfillment. It is a symbol of all of his hard work, and he begins to covet it. I mean, he really covets it. He has dinner with it. He, like, talks to it, hangs out with it. One day, Silas sees one of his neighbors, Sally Oates, the cobbler's wife, suffering from symptoms of heart disease. And he recognizes these symptoms because that is what his mother had died from. And um, because his mother had been something of a healer and had taught him what she knew, he's able to mix up a small remedy for Sally. The result of this act of kindness is twofold. First of all, everyone is like, whoa, this guy is like the old wise woman who used to live here and cure people and... But secondly, because Silas is an honest man and doesn't want to make money from dishonesty by pretending to know like cures when he doesn't, he begins turning people away when they come to him for help and even when they offer to pay him. So his neighbors start to blame him for all of their mishaps and misfortunes. And in Ravelo, just as in Lantern Yard, by not cashing in on a misconception about him, Others turn it against him. Despite his neighbor's mistrust, Silas is a hard worker, and the less time he spends socializing, the more time he can spend working, and sometimes as long as 16 hours a day. He really has like a (laughs) millennial-style work ethic. His life had reduced itself to the functions of weaving and hoarding, without any contemplation of an end towards which the functions tended. The same sort of process has perhaps been undergone by wiser men when they have been cut off from faith and love. Only, instead of a loom and a heap of guineas, they have had some erudite research, some ingenious project or some well-knit theory. Strangely, Mana's face and figure shrank and bent themselves into a constant mechanical relation to the objects of his life so that he produced the same sort of impression as a handle or a crooked tube which has no meaning standing apart. The prominent eyes that used to look trusting and dreamy now looked as if they had been made to see only one kind of thing that was very small, like tiny grain, for which they hunted everywhere. And he was so withered and yellow that though he was not yet forty, the children always called him Old Master Miner. He takes to hiding his coins in a pot, under the bricks beneath his loom and taking them out at night to count them, just like have a little like visitation with them. He spread them out in heaps and bathed his hands in them. Then he counted them and set them up in regular piles and felt their rounded outline between his thumb and fingers and thought fondly of the guineas that were only half earned by the work in his loom, as if they had been unborn children thought of the guineas that were coming slowly through the coming years, through all his life, which spread far away before him, the end quite hidden by countless days of weaving. In chapter three, we're introduced to Squire Cass, the only squire in a small number of landed parishioners in the village. He is a widow who has, I think, four sons, but we only Mm. really get introduced to like two of them. Yeah. So there's Godfrey, who is his eldest son and his heir, and he is described as having a fine, open face and a good nature. He's apparently set to marry Miss Nancy Lameter, although there does seem to be something stopping the wedding from just going ahead. Mm-hmm. And his younger son is Dunstan, or Duncy, who Elliot describes as spiteful and jeering and too fond of drink. There is friction between these two. Lots and lots and lots of friction. Mm-hmm. Godfrey is super stressed because he lent Duncy money, which was rent that someone called Mr. Fowler, I think, paid to Godfrey, who was meant to give it to his dad, but he mm-hmm. gave it to Duncy. And now Duncy's like, well, I'm not going to pay you back. You shouldn't have given it yeah. to me, <laughs> basically. <laughs> you should have known. And on top of that, Duncy's like, also, I'm going to tell dad that you're secretly married. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Juicy. Yeah. Her name is Molly Farron, and Godfrey regrets the marriage because, according to him, she's a drunk. And also, he thinks that Dunce- this is like Duncey's fault that he's married. He's like, I'm sure yeah. Duncey set us up. 
<laughs> he won't take any blame for this at, at all. Well, I mean, yeah, he's he's not good at accepting responsibility. <laughs> George Eliot does not really like give us much here. She doesn't really get into like the setup for Molly and Godfrey mm-hmm. or like how they came to be. So Dunsey has this like great suggestion for how Godfrey can pay back the money that Dunsey has taken, uh, which is that Godfrey should sell his horse wildfire which is just so Dudsy is so funny uh so the money that they make from selling godfrey's horse will cover the money that Dudsy borrowed so that godfrey can pay him back so that Dudsy doesn't tell their dad that godfrey is married mm-hmm. mm, good so godfrey I, I, is <laughs> there's a note that i have in my book around this point and i just wrote I think this might be like the archers and that's why Hannah likes it. But I don't know. I don't know if that's true. That's that's really funny. Yeah, that's it is just like the archers. <laughs> <laughs> just like the archers. So Godfrey is not keen on this plan, guys. Surprise, surprise. One, the hunt that Duncey's gonna go to to sell the horse is taking place in the town where his wife lives. And two, he's seeing Nancy that night. And if he goes to sell his mm. horse then he's going to be covered in mud. He won't be in a fit state to see his not-girlfriend. So Dunsey's yeah. like, oh, also, just to make matters worse, Molly is going to tell Dad about the mm. marriage. And Godfrey's just like, I'm going to tell Dad. You're going to tell Dad? Molly's going to... I'm going to do it. Fine. I don't care about the money. I'll tell Dad about the money. I'll tell him about Molly. And I'll tell him that you borrowed it. And then, you know... You'll leave me alone. It will be fine. Duncey does not want this to happen and convinces Godfrey that this is a terrible idea and they reluctantly come to this agreement that Duncey will go to the neighbouring town, sell the horse, Godfrey will go to the party and everyone is a winner, sort of. Now, in chapter four, Duncey heads off to the hunt. He passes Silas Marner's cottage and then he remembers that Silas has this great hoard of money hidden somewhere inside. How was it that he, Dunstan Cass, who had often heard talk of Marner's miserliness, had never thought of suggesting to Godfrey that he should frighten or persuade the old fellow into lending the money on the excellent security of the young squire's prospects? The resource occurred to him now as so easy and agreeable, especially as Marner's hoard was likely to be large enough to leave Godfrey a handsome surplus beyond his immediate needs and enable him to accommodate his faithful brother, that he had almost turned the horse's head towards home again. Godfrey would be ready enough to accept the suggestion. He would snatch eagerly at a plan that might save him from parting with wildfire. And it's really the entitlement for me in that paragraph. The fact that he's like, whoa, why haven't I thought about frightening or intimidating this (laughs) guy into giving us his hard-earned money? I mean, whoa. Okay, so in the end, Dunsey decides not to try for Marner's money just yet because it will because it'll be more satisfying to, you know, swagger about during the sale Mm -hmm. and it'll piss off Godfrey, which is, I mean, really Dunsey's greatest joy, it seems. So the sale goes to plan and Dunsey is offered 120 for wildfire. And that's like a solid 20 more than uh, what they needed to give dear old dad. So like great deal. Got a little little bit on the top that I can probably gamble or do whatever with or drink away, (laughs) you know. And Dunsey is told to deliver the horse to Batherley Stables, but obviously he decides he's going to join in the hunt first, and then he'll take the horse to the stables. Uh, but, you know, he drinks, and then he, he drives. Just, yeah, he's just, like, got this hip flask of brandy, and he's like, this is smart. <laughs> drinks, drives, has a horrible accident, which kills wildfire. I was actually really shocked. Mm. I did gasp at this point. <laughs> and... Uh, I was like, whoa, dilemma. Maybe this is the point where I was like, this is like an Archer's episode, I think. It's so funny um, because later on you do say it. I think it might even be next week. And you're like, 
This is like EastEnders. And EastEnders, <laughs> the showrunner, maybe he still is. I don't know. When Helen oh, he... stabs Rob, he's the old EastEnders. Uh, the, the Archers guy used to do EastEnders. <laughs> That's funny. So we should you get guys... that guy to do Silas Marnet. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. 100%. <laughs> I'd love to see that. <laughs> So, like, Dunsey is so far behind, like, the rest of the group that, like, no one notices what has happened. And he just manages to slip away, like, sight unseen. And he just leaves this mm. poor horse behind. Just, like, in the hedge. Dunsey decides to walk back home. And he is freaking out a little bit. He's like, oh, God, that that didn't go well. Mm. Um, and there's also this very, like, thick mist that is settling. So he can't really see. Has a little, like, bit of a fairy tale quality to it, mm. right? And then he spots Silas Marner's cottage, you know, again in the distance and follows the light shining from the window all the way to the front door, which is totally unlocked. And then he just walks right inside. Just goes in. And he sits down for a minute by the fire and thinks to himself that Marner just, you know, must have slipped in the stone pit and died. So yeah. no one would... <laughs> it's so funny. He's that been in moment. there for like a minute. And he's, he's like, like, this he's guy's dead. probably dead. He must be. It does be. not occur to him that like Silas could be, I don't know, just going to the bathroom. <laughs> he's like, no, this guy's dead. Um, and I know he's got all that money. So, you know, no one will ever know. Like, who will know? Who's going to know? That's like that TikTok sound who's gonna know who's gonna know um this is one of the most interesting scenes in the book for me because omitting the robbery scene would have actually have been a good opportunity for elliot to build some like mystery here and maybe even force the reader to doubt silas along with like the townspeople mm. but instead we are taken through dunsey's like thought process and how he totally justifies this robbery and it really and it also foreshadows another big moment in the book which we're going to get to i think next week so anyway duncy finds the cash he hurries out of there as quick as he can even though in his mind he's like this guy's dead interesting (laughs) and the whole robbery like really just takes less than five minutes um closes the door behind him steps into the mist and just disappears and I think that's a good place to stop for now. I feel like this is the perfect reading material for the end of the year, like as the nights are drawing in. And it is something that we'll talk about more in later episodes, but there is that very intentional fairy tale or ghost story-like quality to the novel, I think, mm. right from the off. So if you cast your mind back to that opening paragraph in the days when the spinning wheels hummed busily in the farmhouses, I just love that opening and how it sets us up as readers for a story that is taking place just a little outside of the world as we know it mm-hmm. long before we know where we are we know that Ravelo will have this out of time quality and is as george Eliot says a village where many of the old echoes lingered undrowned by new voices which could like i mean it just describes like stuff not changing or being like stuck in the past, but also mm-hmm. ghosts. They talk about ghosts so and the supernatural oh, yeah. so much totally. in this book. There's a lot of um, references to like Silas being a ghost, which mm. I think we could talk a little bit more about next week. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Silas, Silas is like every little creature. He's like not a yes. human man. He's like a little yes. goblin. Yeah, yeah. But that I guess in next week's notes. <laughs> So in the essay, The Theme of Alienation in Silas Marner, Fred C. Thompson says that George Eliot commences by setting the story in a vaguely distant past, but simultaneously qualifies any aura of strangeness by associating the age with a practical domestic activity, the spinning wheels. Mm -hmm. Within this temporal frame, she moves from the sheltered farmhouses and upper class estates to the exposed outskirts of civilization, where the occasional wanderers of his yet unspecified occupation are seen in sharp contrast to the natives. Intimations of the occult aroused by the dog's barking at the silhouette 
against a wintry sunset are dispelled by the prosaic interpretation. The focus next shifts to the shepherd's apprehension about the figure and his mysterious bag, and again, a rational explanation is offered, the grounds for any supernatural reality being transferred to rustic superstition. And she's doing that all the way through the novel. She'll be like, mm. hey, this is kind of spooky, but it isn't. It's just old timey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, pastoral gothic. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Did you invent that? I, I did, I think. <laughs> I just said it. <laughs> <laughs> so a brilliant early example of this is Mr. Macy's response to one of Silas's cataleptic seizures. No, no, it was no stroke that would let a man stand on his legs like a horse between the shafts and then walk off as soon as you can say gee. But there might be such a thing as a man's soul being loose from his body and going out and in like a bird out of its nest and back. And that was how folks got overwise, for they went to school in this shell estate to those who could teach them more than their neighbours could learn with their five senses and the parson. And where did Master Mana get his knowledge of herbs from, and charms too, if he liked to give him away? In Lauren J. Dessner's essay, The Autobiographical Matrix of Silas Mana, he says that the superstitions which permeate Ravelot and which are so fully described explain and excuse the failings of Ravelot folk. They're ignorant to be sure, but they're not mean. The world of culture, the modern rationalist intellectual world, which is invited to laugh with the Ravelo folk, is pointedly encouraged not to laugh at them. And as the novel progresses, right, we do see more examples of that, but also examples of how the more civilised community that Silas belonged to in Lantern Yard suffered from the same failings. Mm-hmm. Like that really struck me and how Silas and the people around him relate to his seizures is just like great evidence of that. Mm -hmm. Because you've got one thing that keeps happening to him and these two very different communities kind of just doing the exact, the exact same. Bruce K. Martin said in the essay, similarity within dissimilarity, the dual structure of Silas Marner that Rural superstition supplants religious narrowness in persecuting Silas, which is, you know, just a really great quote and something I really picked up on in the opening of chapter two was that sense of transportation and how it can completely like affect your worldview. Even people whose lives have been made various by learning sometimes find it hard to keep a fast hold on their habitual views of life on their faith in the invisible, nay, on the sense that their past joys and sorrows are a real experience when they are suddenly transported to a new land, where the beings around them know nothing of their history and share none of their ideas, where their mother earth shows another lap and human life has other forms than those on which their souls have been nourished. Silas has been completely transported from the world of Lantern Yard, his religion, and dropped into Ravelot where people go to church, but also still believe in like witches and the supernatural. Yeah, it, it's kind of like Rip Van Winkle, right? But mm. he doesn't mm-hmm. find himself in the future. He like goes backwards in time. George Eliot definitely wants you to relate to Silas Marner as a fairy tale character. I think creature, fairy tale creature is probably more accurate mm-hmm. than any other character in this story. And an example of that is when he gives his neighbour the natural remedy that his mother taught him. Such a sort of thing had not been known since the wise woman at Tarley died. And she had charms as well as stuff. Everybody went to her when their children had fits. Silas Marner must be a person of the same sort. For how did he know what would bring back Sally Oates's breath if he didn't know a fine sight more than that? The wise woman had words that she muttered to herself so that you couldn't hear what they were. And if she tied a bit of red thread round the child's toe the while, it would keep off the water in the head. And then Elliot goes even further with that witch imagery and describes Silas's precious coins as his familiars, which is so Mm. intentional. She's just laying it all out. 
The money not only grew, but it remained with him. He began to think it was conscious of him, as his loom was, and he would on no account have exchanged those coins, which had become his familiars, for other coins with unknown faces. He handled them, he counted them, till their form and colour were like the satisfaction of a thirst to him. But it was only in the night, when his work was done, that he drew them out to enjoy their companionship. There will be more examples of the fairy tale within Silas Marner as we read the book. But I will say, ahead of next week's chapters, keep the image of a changeling child and the living quality of that money that George Eliot is describing in your mind when you read next week's set of chapters. Mm. If you want to get ready for the next episode, we will be reading and discussing chapters 5 through 12. 5 through 12, and we would love to hear what you think of the novel so far. I will be sure to post links to all these articles that we discussed today in the discussion threads. And Hannah, where can our good listeners find those links? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, in English and Spanish, wherever you get your usual literary fix. And there is a chapter about George Eliot in there, with all of her names. (laughs) All of them. And a big thank you to Katie Mosley for, is it, is that Mosley? Moselby? (laughs) Mosley. Mosley. And a big thank you to Katie for coming in and being George Eliot for us uh, each week, reading you those little snippets of Silas Marner. Thanks, Katie.